and we're live. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 23 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we give you stories from recent human past of great mistakes and gigantic cock-ups and give you lessons that you can learn. So hopefully you don't repeat those same mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. Mistakes are fun. And we just love making them consistently, usually the same ones, over and over again in a constant loop of disappointment. It's ridiculous. Anyway, um, <laughs> that, that, that took a that turn. Got yeah, that got dark. <laughs> oh, you know what? I haven't even started my audio. I should probably do that. Um, oh, oh, I did. I did do mine for a change. How about that? I, I can't believe I forgot about that. That's that's typical of me. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll work. I'll work it in post. It's fine. Anyway, <laughs> joining me as ever is my amazing co-host Derek. Derek, how has your week been? Uh, yeah, it's Christmas time. Are you gearing up for the Christmas time thing? Yeah, yeah. I still haven't put up my decorations. I'm a bit of a, a, <laughs> a late bloomer when it comes to getting in, in into the season. But sure. Yeah, I it, think the older you get, the like if you're in full-time employment at a certain age, it's very difficult to get into the Christmas spirit because you just don't have the time. To yeah. Like, brought into that world you know especially when we're in lockdown or like we might be working from home or whatever it is you know you're not surrounded by the culture of christmas quite so much yeah, so, yeah and then it, then it makes it like even worse that it's you know in the 70s and sunny mm. and you know arizona it does <laughs> not feel like christmas when it's christmas time because it feels like every yeah, other time I, of the year <laughs> i i get that you know i i think um i think as time uh, goes on and the world gets hotter, um, <laughs> the UK might be like that as well. But yeah, I, I think um, it is difficult. Like I always was amazed that Australians celebrate Christmas by going down onto the beach and like having a barbecue <laughs> because it's their summer. So right. they're, like, they're like, yeah, it's Christmas. We get days off and it's hot. Perfect. So um, yeah, I kind of, um, I think I will get into the Christmas mood once we're kind of, me and my wife are going to visit our in-laws um, kind of over the period. So I think that's when the Christmas time will kick in. I've done pretty much 90% of my Christmas shopping. Um, so I, I got that out of the way. But yeah, like I haven't, I haven't seen the Christmas adverts. I haven't seen the Christmas parades or the, the decorations we have are very minimal. But, um, you know, I think I will get into the spirit. And I think the spirit of Christmas for the for me this year will be, oh, my God, I get a break from work. So, <laughs> that's fine. It's like, I can relax. Ooh, there's there's is one. What's it? Uh, Christmas films. It, Home Alone's on. Oh, great. It must be Christmas. Um, oh, I thought I was going to go with Die Hard. Although Die Bruce Hard, Willis says the one that's, that's not on. a Christmas movie. That's a Bruce Willis movie. It's a Bruce Willis action movie <laughs> that happens to involve Christmas time. Um, a bit like the Harry Potter films are considered Christmas films because they were released at Christmas time. And some of them feature Christmas celebrations. I don't know. But also another thing, a feature of the UK is um, every Christmas we seem to get Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is not a Christmas film. But it's always on at Christmas. <laughs> like I don't get it. Dick Van Dyke in a flying car. How is this Christmassy? I mean, I'm not complaining. Yeah. It's you know, it's one of the coolest guys on the planet. Uh, but yeah, it's like <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand why we get that at Christmas. Anyway, Christmas out of the way. I'm All sure right. the celebrations will go on. Derek, can you tell us who your idiot uh, this episode is, please? Okay, so we got a request 
Uh, our homie Joel reached out on Instagram to say what's up and then dropped this gem right on me. And it's totally up request. my nice. Yeah, it's it's totally up my alley too because it's baseball. Ooh. Oh, I'm very excited. I have a soft spot for baseball. I've never seen a game, but I've always wanted to uh, to attend an American baseball game. I don't know why. There's something about that that really appeals to me. So... There are loads of fun, so I could see why yeah. it would. It's been it's a it's been it's had like a strange history as well, and it's had a lot of controversy and scandals and all kinds of different stories throughout the year. Right now, oh. uh, the Owners are doing a lockout, which is like the opposite of a strike. Okay. So one season back from the the weird COVID season and the shortening <laughs> where no fans were in the stands and there was like cardboard cutouts. Now we're questioning whether or not we're going to have baseball going into next spring. That's sad. But anyway, it's it's kind of like they're taking writing from like professional wrestling with the scandals and <laughs> and crazy stuff that's going on people are running running people over in duis and then oh, wow. locking out and uh pete rose bet on himself you know yeah, that one love that one there was sorry just just i just want to interrupt bobby the brain heenan wrestling manager was inducted into the wwe hall of fame one year it was a really good year i think it was 2004 or something like that anyway it was the year a bunch of people got inducted like hulk hogan and jesse ventura and the celebrity inductee that year was pete rose nice uh, uh, yeah because he'd been at three successive wrestlemanias where kane had battered him um and it was like a running joke one year he came in as a chicken and attacked Kane and then got the head taken off. It's like, oh, it's Pete Rose again. Um, but Bobby the Brain Heenan, it was a really emotional induction for him because even though he was a heel manager for his entire career, Bobby Heenan, like the fans loved him. They loved to boo Bobby Heenan because he was so good at rallying up. He was very funny. Um, and he just beaten cancer at that point. He'd beaten throat cancer. So it was a really good feel-good story. And he's giving this speech, and Bobby Heenan was such a good talker. And even though he had, like, surgery on his throat and, like, his his jaw was a bit messed up from all of the treatment and stuff, he gave this amazing speech. And at one of the moments where um, he was um, talking about wrestling, he was just, he randomly dropped in. He said, oh, I do feel like an idiot because, you know, I bet on wrestling. And Pete Rose just went, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a subtle jab at Pete Rose on a stage in front of thousands of people. And Pete Rose one. was not too happy about it at all. So. Well, see, and that's the thing is because he's probably never going to make it into the Baseball Hall of Fame just because he was removed for betting. And I mean, it I sucks because you bet on yourself. You know, it's not like he was doing anything other than being really confident. I know. Yeah. And actually, you know, if you look at his overall statistics like i understand betting scandals are bad and stuff but he definitely deserves to be in the hall of fame you know with yeah. all his achievements my god yeah yep. just for the fact that he looked 50 for 30 years is amazing <laughs> <laughs> that is always a good time but um so outside of the pete rose scandal yeah. there there was another time that a lot of people remember and that's the steroid era for baseball yes which yes is, i remember that that was around my time it was a great time. I mean, yes, not sixty I mean, home runs a year, it, and it was it really got the fans back into yeah. baseball after the strike back in '94. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> the, the the home runs were exciting. They were, yeah. The and people involved in them were huge stars, like Sammy Sosa and what was his Mark name, McGuire? Mark McGuire. 
Yep. Maguire, yeah, who I think kind of essentially grassed everyone up eventually, just like told the world what was going on. And yeah, the, there's he... no way you couldn't tell that they weren't on roids though, because they were fucking huge. Oh, yeah. Well, and he wasn't that huge until he met the gentleman that I'm going to talk about today. Oh. Who may have been uh, a reason for that. And the guy that I have today is uh, Jose Canseco. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love this guy. He's the <laughs> other half of Mark McGuire and the Bash brothers. That's so, right. Yeah. Oh, my um, God. I can't wait for this. I know some of the stories, but oh, man. I, I didn't know all of the stories. And it just, I was like, oh my God, it's like one of his soccer guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, he was born in uh, July 2nd, 1964 in Havana, Cuba. Oh. His father, Jose Sr. was, uh... oh wait, he's <laughs> his, fa his father was Jose Sr. His mother was Barbara Canseco and he has a twin brother, Ozzy Canseco, who oh. is also a major league player, but not as big of a name. Yeah, usually the case, isn't it? The minor brother of the two, sure. It has to suck to be a twin and be the the minor brother, though. Like that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, that that ain't good. That ain't good. But uh, at least he got his shot. You know, if if you're if you're the bro the sibling of a famous athlete and you also get a chance to be a famous athlete. Don't try, don't live in the shadow of, you, you know, just accept that you're not going to be as famous or as good as them. Just make your living, get out peacefully because you'll probably have a quieter life than they will. That's yes. For sure. Well, and he did because I don't even know if he was involved in the juicing scandal. They didn't get exactly. into it. So it worked out. But, um, oh, with us broadcasting on LinkedIn this time, well, oh, how yeah. are they with all of my, uh, my cursing and poor language. <laughs> we'll soon find out. Uh, All right. <laughs> let's just go for it. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm sure they're fine. There's there's plenty of memes on there that are quite questionable anyway. But yeah, let's cool. carry on and let's see. I, at the moment, we're still up. So thank you, LinkedIn, for not blocking us. But yeah. <laughs> so he's born in Havana. And I don't know if you know this, but Fidel Castro became kind of a thing there in 1959. <laughs> Yeah, slightly. Yeah, there was a little thing that happened the, in Cuba the, around that time. The movement, whole, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the movement towards communism and all that stuff yeah. kind of put a squeeze on his uh, Jose's dad, who worked in the oil and gas industry Ooh, as a territory manager. Yeah. It it progressed into a, a bad way where he lost his job and his house. Mm. And eventually, when Jose Jr., Mr. Jose Canseco Jr., was one years old, the family got permission to leave Cuba somehow and ended up in Miami, Florida, which is oh, where yeah, that's he grew the, up. Um, there was a period where, um, what was, what's the word for it? Basically, clemency, where um, uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, the leader of Cuba, God, I've, you just mentioned his name. Uh, Fidel Castro. Castro. Yes. Yeah, it was like, I will give everyone like a period of time. You can leave uh, and there will be no repercussions. And he was good to his word for once. So everyone kind of left and ended up in, in Miami and various other parts of the country as well. So yeah, there was a mass exodus of people. And that's what happened. Jose Canseco and his family took off, ended up in Miami in 1965, where he grew up and developed a love for baseball. He eventually played baseball in high school. But uh, fun fact is that he failed to make the varsity team at the Miami Ooh. Coral Park High School until his senior year. Wow. So uh, to amazing. any of the kids out there that might listen, 
or might be wondering, hey, man, I didn't make it my freshman year under the varsity team. I'm never going to make it. He didn't make the varsity team till his senior year, and he ended up being a professional baseball player. So there you go. Absolutely, yeah. There are plenty (laughs) of people out there who are late blooming athletes. You know, there's loads of stories of the kind of the people who come to sport, the sport, or prominence in the sport quite late compared Mm -hmm. to other people. And there's also plenty of other stories of people who are recruited at a ridiculously young age and never make anything of themselves. One of the greatest examples I can think of in American soccer is Freddie Adu, Freddie Adu, who was Hmm. like signed professionally at, I think, 14 or something crazy like that. And everyone was like, this guy is the next world football star. He's the next Pele. And like he ended up playing like at the back end of like the Turkish third division or something like that by the age of 25 or something like that. So it it does happen and it doesn't happen. So don't give up on your dreams. You never know. You might make it. Yeah. But that said, he was the most valuable player on the junior varsity team uh, his junior year. And then he was also the most valuable player on the varsity team that following year when he did make it to senior year. Um, When he graduated in 1982, he was drafted in the 15th round of the 1982 Major League Baseball draft by the Oakland Athletics, which is where where I actually started to really like Mark McGuire when he came to the team. But I'll get to right. that. Um, Canseco started the 1985 season with the Class A, Double A Huntsville Stars, but finished up the season as a late September call-up for the Oakland Athletics. Uh, after becoming known as Parkway Jose because he hit really, really long home runs. Uh, It was 25 in the first half of the season, and they ended up landing near Memorial Parkway outside of the Joe Davis Stadium where he played minor league ball. So that caught the attention. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it did. Jesus. He ended up making his major league debut on September 2nd, where he struck out in his one and only at-bat against the Baltimore Orioles. Okay, Uh, He did get his first hit in September, uh, just a few days later on the 7th, off of Ron Gildry of the New York Yankees. Ooh, Uh, he he got a hit off the Yankees. Wow, that's a pretty good start to your career. Jeez. uh, By 1986, he established himself and played his first full season as the starting left fielder for the Athletics. And by the All-Star break, he was leading the American League in home runs with 23. And... He was leading them in runs batted in with 78. Wow. So he got selected as a backup outfielder for the All-Star game in nice. the first full season he played baseball. So he's taken off like a rocket. Yeah, that's a <laughs> hell of a rookie year, really. Um, in 1987, Mark McGuire showed up and joined Jose Canseco on the athletics and was like, hey, what's up, dude? And hit 49 <laughs> home runs and was named the American League Rookie of the Year. So... Hmm. Some competition started. Oh, that but that's good. Like if you have healthy competition inside a team, that can generally lead that team to like absolute heights, like amazing levels. Which it does. Um, because <laughs> Jose keeps up with him and he's hitting 31 home runs to his 49. Jesus. But he's also crushing it with 113 runs batted in, just killing it. Yeah. But he missed a few games here and there. Um yeah. Together, when you're a big baseball star. Well, he he tended to be a little bit injury prone throughout uh, okay. his career, sure. but I think it's just because 
maybe too much muscle growing too fast. I don't know how that works. Anyway, (laughs) um, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire became known as the Bash brothers because they were just crushing home runs and bashing the ball. Yes. (laughs) Um, Makes literal sense. Yes. The two of them went on to put up really big numbers and then won the World Series in 1989. Nice. Um, Jose kind of had some ups and downs, had some injured seasons on that path. But by February 10th, 1989, things get bad for him. And he's arrested okay. in Florida for reckless driving and allegedly leaving, leading an officer on a 15-mile chase. Oh, dear. That's not a good start. Uh oh he ends he ended up being found guilty for that and he was only fined five hundred dollars. What? For a fifteen mile police chase. Maybe it was really slow. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was OJ <laughs> slow. Maybe that's what it was. Holy shit. Did he get a fine for that? Do you know? I don't know if anything happened with that. I think it was just <laughs> just the other stuff. Yeah, just like I mean, nothing happened to OJ around that time. So I don't know. I don't I don't think he ever because he had a really good legal team, didn't he? So I don't think anything happened with him. But that's you imagine if anybody else let the cops on a 15 mile chase, you look they would pile like, that on, yeah, yeah, god damn right. So he gets off with that $500 fine, and then April rolls around and he's like, hmm, watch this, and gets arrested in California for carrying a loaded semi automatic pistol in his car. Why? And they take him in, he's released on bail, and he pled no contest, and that kind of all went away. It just went away, just walking around the streets with a semi-automatic weapon and nothing happens of it, Jesus. So in the 1990s, they started to get weirder. That happened in April of 89, so I guess he just gets to chill for the rest of the year. And, well, a couple of years, because in 1992, he gets more serious charges when he's charged with aggravated battery for ramming his Porsche into a BMW that was driven by his uh, then-estranged wife, Esther Canseco after the argument or some sort of verbal altercation. So you might say by February 13th, 1992, it was possible that he was on steroids and that was some sort of (laughs) roid rage incident. Sounds like it. Yeah. But I don't know. Mm. On March, March 19th, 1992, just a little while later, he pleads guilty to the aggravated assault charges and had to go through counseling and okay. do some community service. He's gotten away with a lot at this point. The problem is, is that we're, as we found with the Joey Bartons of this world, and now it seems Jose Canseco, if you don't give people a bit of a wake-up call, uh, like after a couple of these things, they kind of escalate quite quickly from there, don't they? That's not good. Yeah, well, I think maybe they tried to give him a wake-up call um, after he had a little slap on the wrists, Because in uh, August of 1992, in the middle of a game, while Jose Canseco was on the on-deck circle, the Oakland Athletics traded him to the Texas Rangers for some pitchers and some cash. In the middle of the game? Yep. Holy Um, shit. At the time of the trade, the A's were leading the American League West Division, and they were looking to beef up their pitching to go into the playoffs, and maybe we're sick of his shit. So <laughs> yeah. they sent him packing. I was going to say, like, that's the the thing you have to do, isn't it? You have to weigh up, like, do we stick with this guy who's our second biggest hitter, who's, you know, a big part of our team? 
Or do we run the risk of if Mark McGuire gets injured, our season's fucked and get a bunch of nice, cool pitches and a bit of money? What, what do we do? Because I'm sure he was probably bringing in money from advertising, sponsors, stuff like that. He's a bit of a bad boy. Sometimes yeah. certain advertisers like that sort of thing. But yeah, they made an interesting choice. Because again, from the Joey Barton episode, we found that time after time, these teams stuck with him because they were paying him a shitload of money and they felt like they needed him. But apparently, right. the second biggest hitter in the league, they don't need this guy. So, well, wow. At the time of the trade, Jose Canseco was was considered to be the best player in Major League Baseball all, all around. At, Jeez, that's insane. It, from 1986 until the date of the trade, no other player had hit more home runs in the Major Leagues. He had 226 from 1986 wow. to, what was it, 1993. Jeez. That's incredible. That's an amazing run. My God. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, things were going well for him. And when he got to Texas, things kind of continued to go well for him. He stayed okay. relatively healthy, played in all of the first 45 games of the season. Wow. But he he was kind of hitting for a low average at the okay. time. Um, but he did manage to get 750 RBIs in less than 1,000 games played. Okay. So um, they were – he was doing well. He was – producing in texas and on may 26 1993 during a game against the cleveland indians uh carlos martinez hit a fly ball towards uh, jose canseco but he lost sight of it when he was going into the warning track and it came down and hit him in the head and bounced over the wall for a home run (laughs) don't know what that has to do with anything but i thought it was funny that's fucking <laughs> hilarious. I thought was he were uh, he would he have been wearing a helmet in the outfield nope. or not? Do they not? No, nope, just bounced shit, right off his hurt. noggin a little bit. That, that would have been quite painful because I've I've been hit by a softball before. I I was hit in the jaw by a soccer ball when I was much younger and dislocated my jaw because it was hit at like full Ooh. full pace and I was like six feet from it. it just smashed me in the face but i can't imagine like a baseball on top of your head would be a particularly pleasant experience no it hurts a little bit it's <laughs> it I, it hurts less getting hit in the face by a fly ball that's coming down than it does right. getting hit by one that's coming off the bat like when you're in the infield oh yeah because yeah, they're yeah. flying then yeah that, that's <laughs> like a hundred plus miles an hour so yeah that makes sense so, yeah, that weird thing happens, and then, like, a few days later, he decides to ask his manager to let him pitch in the eighth inning of a blowout loss to the Boston Red Sox. So he's a, okay. an outfielder, never done any major league pitching, and he decides that he wants to try to pitch. I don't know if he, how hard he got hit when that ball came down, but <laughs> now he wants to be a pitcher. So he goes in and he, he pitches, and yeah. during his inning-long pitching appearance, he injured his arm. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not what a was pitcher. he thinking? <laughs> I, I don't know, but he ended up out of the lineup from May 31st to June 10th, and then okay. he came back and played 15 games. But mm-hmm. the arm discomfort kept flaring up, so he was mm. kind of shut down and ended up having to have Tommy John surgery, where he ended up missing the rest of the season. Yeah, that's that's your season done at that point, isn't it? That's terrible. And that's when the 1994 strike hit. <sighs> So it's like, oh, crap, is he going to get to play baseball again? He's been playing Mm -hmm. for a while. He's still young, but, I mean, you have a big injury like that, and then you miss all that time. Ten-year vet at this point, more or less. So, yeah, that's going to hurt your career. So what would he – so I I guess would he have been signed – 
in his uh, when he was drafted in 85 he would have been like i guess 1920 something like that maybe 21 uh he got drafted right out of high school so uh okay so 18, probably 18. So he would have been, okay so he would have been like 28 most people at that point in the eight, the late 80s early 90s you can look to get a career into your mid 30s i guess so oh, yeah. that's not too bad you know you're not we're not getting like the brett Favre's kind of going well into their 40s all these miraculous athletes that was incredibly rare but yeah he, he's probably got a few years left in him he just needs to be careful and not do stupid shit like pitch again what the hell was he thinking yeah well um when he came back though the fans weren't really there for him now mm. um but he returned to his former status as a power hitter and baseball started to notice him again and they were like damn that's how we're gonna get the fans back we're gonna um, we're gonna start getting these power hitters and have home run contests where Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire are battling to beat the uh, home run record. And on um, April twentieth of nineteen ninety four five, he hit his two hundred and fiftieth home run of his career, which made him the sixteenth no. player ever to reach that total before the age of thirty. So that's there. incredible. That's how old he was. He was 29. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's that's kind of amazing because baseball has got a very long and storied history, one of the oldest sports in American history. And, um, you know, to have that many players and he was only the 16th in its history, that's kind of incredible. My God. Well, it's 16th in history to hit 250 home runs before he turned 30. That's amazing. That's absolutely That's, amazing. It's good stuff. He's putting up good yeah. numbers. He's breaking yeah. all kinds of records. He's, and he seems to have calmed down a little bit. You know? Well, we'll see. I mean, <laughs> he he he's doing his part to bring the fans back and, and being high energy. And, Excellent. you know, he needed something to, to help him stand out. And I think it's when he really gets involved with the juicing because in November of 1997, he's arrested for beating his then wife, Jessica Canseco, oh. for which he pled no guilty and was sentenced to one year probation and mandatory counseling. Oh, yeah, that's 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 around that time. OK, yeah. Okay. And then the counseling didn't stick because in October of 2001, Canseco and his brother Ozzy got into a bar fight with a couple of men at a Miami Beach nightclub that left one of those men with a broken nose and another one needing 20 stitches. Oof, uh, that's yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, the, the, you hear so many stories of people who have done steroids who just lose their shit. Yeah. Um, it is a what, big problem. It's a huge problem. <laughs> Dynamite kid, uh, an, an amazing, but an amazing wrestler, but a terrible human being wrote a biography called pure dynamite. It was one of the most shocking biographies anyone had read at the time. And it was released. He didn't care who he burned in this documentary. And he talked in this uh, biography, he talked about how the steroids made him feel. Mm -hmm. And he said he was standing next to a guy um, in like a, a bathroom stall one day. And the guy um, did the thing where they were both peeing and he went and spat into the stall. People do sometimes in urinals. And this enraged Dynamite so much that oh. he grabbed the guy and headbutted him while he was having a pee. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know why I did that. That just happened. And I did it. And then like seconds later, I was like, why the fuck did I do that? It's, it was steroids. It yeah. was the roid rage had kicked in. It lasted for 10 seconds. And in those 10 seconds, this poor guy was on the floor, broken nose, blood everywhere, covered in pee. 
you know Luck. it's not a good start yeah oh so man the steroids isn't they are not good when taken to the excess that a lot of professional athletes do for a number of reasons but yeah roid rage is bad well and how much would it suck to get beat up at a bar by two professional baseball players <sighs> so because like, they're already going to be big and good athletes exactly and like you are never living that shit down like you anytime you go out with anyone who was there <laughs> that's the first thing they mention on the night out and that's your night ruined so... yeah well anyway him and his brother got uh, probation and community service again. Fucking hell. I don't know why it is when, I don't know. If I were to get into a bar fight, I'd get like seven years. Exactly. Like anybody <laughs> else breaks someone's nose and, and causes 20 stitches. You're getting ABH, GBH, whatever it might be. You're looking at a considerable stretch of prison time. But for some reason, celebrities just get the most ridiculously lenient. They must have incredible attorneys. I swear it's, to God. it's gotta be part of it. And I mean, yeah. at least it gives us good stories, you know? Yeah, it does. It just does. bam, bam, bam. Uh following his retirement in May of 2002, uh, mm. he started talking about how he might have been blackballed from the major leagues and announced that he was writing a tell-all book about his baseball career, oh. which um highlighted the increased usage of anabolic steroids in baseball. Yeah, so, I remember this. Uh, in March 2003, Canseco missed a court appearance, and the judge revoked his probation. Oops. Oops. And he got uh, two years under house arrest, and then I'm three more years. <laughs> and then three more years I'll, of probation. Oh, I have to sit at home Ooh, in my and giant you, fucking mansion. Yeah, I was gonna say you gotta imagine it's a nice house too. Exactly. And, and does house? Can you go out in your yard with house arrest? Because yeah, I mean, yeah, probably you had acreage in the perimeter of your property. You can use. What so, happens if you got like 800 acres? You're pretty much set then. You huh? are free, my friend. <laughs> obviously, with 2003 before home deliveries over the internet were a major thing, but I doubt he was in harsh circumstances, really, was he? Compared no. to people who were actually in prison for two years. So somehow during his two years of house arrest in June of 2003, uh, he was arrested at home for the probation violation, uh, probation violation and tested positive for steroids, so... He's not Why leaving his he house. Still but he's taking still... them. I don't know. He's, Maybe he's going to make a comeback. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, well, you do. You do them in cycles, though, so you're not like yeah. always on them anyway. Yeah, and I know that um, one of the ways. So I know Brock Lesnar when he made his uh, unofficial UFC comeback at UFC 200 to fight. Um, oh God, what was his name? Mark something or other. Um, he was popped afterwards because he he was still he was under contract to WWE at the time, but he was loaned to the UFC for their 200th pay per view celebration thing. He was popped afterwards for taking a an estrogen uh -huh. drug, which was used to kind of reduce the effects when you're coming off testosterone. And if you look at the UFC 200 um, weigh-ins, he's definitely roided out of his fucking brain. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, I like. I guess like people have to do it in cycles, and then maybe you have to taper off so that you don't end up with enlarged internal organs and die of early heart failure and issues like that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like, all the bad stuff that comes with the little boost that they give you. Yeah, why the fuck would you still be doing steroids after you've retired? It's just stupid. Anyway, carry on, please. Well, so after testing positive for steroids after he retired and while on probation, he spends a month in jail, which I'm pretty sure gave him time to work on his book. Because in sure. 2005, the book came out uh, called Juiced, 
Wild yes. Times, Rampant Roids, Smash Hits, and How Baseball Got Big, which is mm. a hell of a long name. It is, but that name, Juiced, I remember that name. That was, even though I wasn't a massive baseball fan, you know, you're aware mm -hmm. you know, because America's culture is spread across the world. We're aware of things like that that happened that we may not have a, a huge influence in. But when this broke, the name of that book, it was everywhere and it was shocking. So, yeah, Jesus. Well, in that book, he admitted to using anabol anabolic steroids and then went on to name drop just a ton of other players that had used them also, which is kind of a dick move. Yeah. Uh, or was... maybe it's a whistleblower. Mm, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, usually whistleblowers are kind of hidden. not doing it also. <laughs> yeah. also Not doing it typically, but also they are private. And their identities are kept hidden for the most part, I think, unless they choose to waive their right to anonymity. But yeah, there's no way he, he's doing yeah. it for his pork sales. Let's oh, talk. yeah. He came out and then just dropped all these names and was addicted yeah. to his teammates. And Mark McGuire uh, was one of the ones officially totally named. And mm. that kind of sucked for him because he had beaten the uh, home run record, hit, hit over 61. And now yes. it's kind of like, well, he was roided out when he did it. That's not cool. <laughs> Yeah, um, he also named Rafael Pomero, Jason Giambi, Ivan Rodriguez, Juan Gonzalez, all as fellow steroid users that he admitted he injected himself. What? So he knew um, uh, that they were using. He also claimed that up to 85% of the major league players took steroids. Yeah. But the figure has been disputed by a ton of people that are in the game. Okay. Uh, my Actually, my son's pitching coach for his high school team is uh, was a teammate of Barry Bonds, who was another person oh, tied yes. up with juicing. And he actually testified on that congressional thing. Holy shit. During, yeah. So that's kind of a neat thing to look at and some stories yeah. to hear. Um, anyway, most of the players that that were named in the book initially denied the steroid use. Of course they did. But Giambi admitted it in his testimony before the grand jury Jason Giambi was quite a big name at the time, um, and his idiot brother, um, Jeremy. Uh, yes, yeah. Jeremy Giambi, well, who famously portrayed as a slob and an <laughs> idiot in Moneyball. Yes. Uh, also for the Oakland Athletics. Yes, they've got a problem. Uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Giambi goes before a grand jury that's investigating the juicing case in January of 2010. And then Mark McGuire is also there and admitted publicly that, yes, I did use steroids, which kind of put an asterisk on his home run record, I mm. think, but they yeah. didn't officially. Um, he, uh, let's see, October 10th, 2008. Jose Canseco gets into some more issues where he's detained by immigration officials at the border in San Diego because he tried to bring across a fertility drug from Mexico. What? Uh, he said that the drug was to help with his hormone replacement therapy that he needed because of his steroid use, which makes sense. But mm. he's coming across all... with unprescribed yeah. juice. There are <laughs> other ways of getting... Um, hormone replacement therapy um, for going across the border and getting a dodgy substance. That sounds like a, a bullshit excuse to me. It happens a lot, actually, in this oh, yeah, area. Sure. I mean, uh, our healthcare system being what it is, a lot of elderly folks go on down to Mexico and pick up their meds. Yeah, makes sense. Um, 
In 2008, he pled guilty at a federal court uh, for that charge and was sentenced to 12 months unsupervised probation. So basically, go wander off. Yeah, off you go. He, and he wandered over to the A&E Network where they did a documentary on Jose Canseco called Jose Canseco, The Last Shot, which chronicles his attempts to end his steroid use, which oh. appeared to be ongoing. And... In it, he also says that he regrets writing his tell-all book and naming his former teammates. Okay, and but he doesn't he, regret the money. He probably not, but he, he's he's bummed out because they're not letting him participate in any Major League Baseball affiliated programs. That makes sense. Yeah, and he tried to reach out to his former Bash brother Mark McGuire and other teammates. They all just kind of blew him off. Yeah, and weren't of giving off. him no surprise. Yeah. and then he started doing some other weird shit. He decided okay. in 2008 he was going to be a fighter and in oh, the most yeah. the most Philadelphia thing that I can think of to happen a sportscaster in Philadelphia and former NFL football player Vi Sikama uh accepted a challenge from Jose Canseco to fight him for $30,000. Fucking hell, is that all? I'll take well, that. I'll punch Jose Canseco in the face for that money, Jesus. Well, Kunseko claims to have earned his black belt in Kung Fu and Taekwondo. Yeah, whatever, buddy. But that former NFL player was also a Golden Gloves boxer that yeah. uh, fought along with Sugar Ray Leonard in them. And the Jesus. fight takes place on January 12th or July 12th in Atlantic City. The five foot nine <laughs> Sikahima knocked okay. out the six foot four Jose Kunseko in the first round. Of course he did. Just Jose Canseco, you can say you've got all the black belts in the world, but if you are in there with someone who is a legitimately trained boxer or wrestler or whatever it is, they are going to beat you into the soil very quickly. My God. You know who you might have a chance against? Who's that? A radio personality and former child actor Danny Bonaducci, because that's who he fought next. Yes. <laughs> he was a nutcase. Danny Bonaducci is out of his tree, completely fucking insane. So a cool thing happens on January 24th, 2009. Nutjob nice. Danny Bonaducci meets up with Nutjob Jose Canseco, and they get into the ring and decide to fight out a three-round, um, what do you call that? Uh, not not a sanctioned bout, but uh, oh, like exhibition, exhibition match. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah. I was looking for. Yeah, and yeah. it ended in a draw. So you get two crazy bastards together that don't know what they're doing and they will beat each other for three rounds and you can watch. <laughs> it's like <laughs> opposing insane magnets, just like <laughs> no one's going to give, but nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Did I mention that he says that he holds black belts in karate and taekwondo and now he starts saying he did Muay Thai and he's an expert with nunchucks? All oh, right. So he's Steven Seagal now. Holy shit. And he enters into some mixed martial arts in his debut with Dream 9 on May 26, 2009, where he fights his first MMA fight against a seven-foot-two kickboxer named Hong Man Choi yeah, as part of the Dream Super Hulk tournament. Um, yeah. He lost the fight after slipping and tapping out uh, to Choi's ground and pound. So he slipped and then got beat up. Or then he got Choi knocked out, fell down, and then got beat up. <laughs> Yeah, that's, but I mean, uh, that... he's channeling his rage, I guess. Yeah, that's 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 one thing. At least I know Hongman Choi was Brock Lesnar's first ever opponent in MMA, and uh, 
Brock kind of took the guy down in about 10 seconds and then just pounded on him with his fucking laptop sized fists until he <laughs> tapped out. And uh, that fight lasted all of about maybe 30 seconds. You can see it online. Hongman Choi is a big motherfucker. Dude, that's huge. And, but he's not a great fighter. The thing he has going for him is his size. Like, there's not much finesse there. So for Jose Canseco to trip over and get battered by this giant who has no real finesse is kind of like you may not have black belts at that point <laughs> they may have been withdrawn by whoever gave them to you yeah give me those back you don't you don't have those anymore. you're not good enough um on november 6 2009 he gets into another celebrity boxing fight in springfield massachusetts and he loses to Todd Poulton, who's a celebrity of some sorts. I have no idea who he is, but he beat Jose Canseco's ass, too. Um, <laughs> so in 2010, he decides he's going to do something good and starts speaking out about performance-enhancing drugs. And he okay. gets some coverage from ESPN and other news outlets. And he's telling baseball's youth, don't even try them. And they don't even work that well. Um, I, I, the, the evidence to the contrary, Jose. Um, well... But he's got a story to tell you why okay. they don't work that well. Right. Um, he's quoted as saying, these kids don't need steroids to become players. We overemphasize the steroids and not the athletic ability and skills of these people. Mm, We're taking okay. away the, the hard work the athlete puts in and saying that he became great just because of steroids. Let me give you an example. Dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have an identical twin brother, Ozzy. He's the closest thing to me genetically. And in my prime, I was a super athlete. My twin brother used the same chemicals of me, did the same workouts and the same nutrition, and he didn't make it big. What? That's a perfect example of why giving steroids uh, is you're giving them too much credit. Steroids are great. It just wouldn't. It, if they were great, they would have made him a superstar. He's basically said his brother sucks, even though he used steroids. <laughs> so he threw him under the bus, too, while he's trying to do something good. Okay, okay, couple of things. First of all, fucking awful thing to do to your identical twin brother. And also, he's your identical twin brother. So if you're saying that, oh, steroids, they didn't help him, but they they helped, you know, that they, they, you know, and they, they didn't make any difference to him, I'm better than him because I'm genetic. He has the same fucking genetics that you do. <laughs> so of yeah. course, steroids helped you, you fucking idiots. It's, but he's saying his brother used steroids too, and they didn't help him. Uh, that's bullshit. I'm sorry. I, I don't right. think. I mean, okay, maybe early on you can you can make the argument that maybe someone early on was like, "This kid is special. We are going to give him really good coaching. He's going to have mentoring. He's going to learn from the best. We're going to give him the best techniques." And maybe his brother was like, "Didn't get that." Maybe that's the maybe. difference. But you can't argue that someone who is literally your genetic mirror um didn't get you know you can't say that you were a better athlete than them purely based on genetics when they have the exact same setup that you do it doesn't right. work that way he said steroids aren't great i'm great damn it <laughs> fuck off no, sorry <laughs> yes you are great but you're maybe 50 percent great and the rest of the greatness is the roids you know yeah and, and you're a dick um, yeah. <laughs> on on May 22nd, 2013, he undoes all of the goodness that he does because he's named as a suspect in a rape allegation in Las Vegas. Um, he actually broke that news himself on Twitter 
and Why? immediately denied the allegations and posted what? pictures and defamatory information about his accuser. That is, what is wrong with you? You yeah. fucking idiot. Gets oh charged with rape and then just drags her on Twitter. Um, but like on... he broke the story. What's wrong with you? I've heard of getting ahead of a story, but that's like burning. That's the Streisand effect right there. Straight away. Yeah, he 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 skipped go and uh, turned himself in, and then talked all kinds of trash on his accuser. So Moron. that was pretty neat. On June seventh, he was cleared of any wrongdoing following an investigation because he was never charged. Nice. Um, but he he did get shot when he got involved in that because in October of <laughs> twenty. 2014 he accidentally shot himself in his left hand when one of his fingers accidentally squeezed the trigger while he was attempting to clean his gun oh. and it went off and shot him in the hand shot him in the hand yep he shot himself in the hand okay that at first i thought this was well first of all i laughed uh <laughs> and my, my second reaction was oh was this like is he covering up for an attempted suicide is that what this is? But no, he probably is just an idiot and doesn't know proper gun safety. Holy shit. Yep. So did he blow off his own finger? Um, he blew a big hole in his hand and had to do some surgery, but he was able to recover full use of his hand after a few surgeries. That's amazing. Um, that Whoever that surgeon is, give them a Nobel Prize because you have a hole blown in your hand. Your fucking coalacer is gone. So I'm amazed <laughs> that he got use of his hand. Holy shit. Did you just stick your finger through it, though? Sure. Would you? Like, hey, look. Oh, the adrenaline's wearing off. Ah! Sort of thing, yeah. um, also in 2014, he went back to Oakland Coliseum for the first time in nearly 13 years to take wow. part in a reunion ceremony celebrating the 25th anniversary of their 18, uh, 1989 World Series win. Okay, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good for him to be about. I mean, okay, he's a bit tainted, but... You've got to honor stuff like that. That's a major achievement for the Oakland A's. My God. Uh, Mark McGuire didn't show up, though. He didn't yeah, well. come to the event, um, mainly because he thinks Jose is a rat or yeah. because he was busy being a manager. I don't know. I think yeah. that he just doesn't like the guy. Yeah, um, that's probably it, to be honest. Kind of a, a sad winding down. Uh, Jose Canseco opened up his own car wash in Las Vegas, Nevada, okay. on October 26th, 2019 where he signs autographs every Wednesday. Okay. Um, I mean, I hope he's doing all right for money. I assume well, he is. Most recently, he decided he was going to get back into fighting, and he fought Billy Football from Barstool Sports in a boxing match on February 5th of 2021, oh where he was again knocked out in the first round. Oh, Jose, stop, man, before you get fucking brain damage. Jesus. So, yeah, that's oh, Jose Canseco. He's signing autographs and getting his ass kicked all over the place. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's funny because when I heard that, first of all, Jose Canseco, I am aware of this man. He is an idiot. There's no two ways about it. Like his his reputation precedes him in every single way. I knew some of that. I didn't know all of that. And it, it kind of like a lot of the earlier stuff, you can be like, you can somewhat excuse it as like he's a troubled young man never maybe had the support he needed, maybe never had the, the help he needed. It was the 80s. People didn't always get the support they needed back then and the 90s and stuff like that. But after a while, like the stupid shit <coughs> just mounts up 
further and further. Also, one thing I want to point out, one story that I remember about Jose Canseco. Um, <clears throat> back when I was in university, I had a lot of spare time on my hands because everybody does in university when, you know, and I didn't drink. So, you know, I, I had a lot of spare time on my hands. So um, that I used to listen. I had a, I was obsessed with Future Armor, watched it constantly. And oh, yeah. I also used to watch the director's commentaries because they were really entertaining. Some of the voiceover actors and people in there are really, really funny. So listening to them is like comedy in itself. It's like an early form of a podcast, really. Um, <laughs> Right. And uh, I decided to listen <clears throat> to Simpsons commentary afterwards as well, because I thought they'd be just as funny. They're not, because the Simpsons writers are fucking dull as dishwater a lot of the time. <laughs> but um, one episode in particular was really, really funny. And it was the All-Star Baseball uh, Springfield Softball League, where Mr. Burns hires a team of ringers, and they're all Major League Baseball teams, and all of a sudden they've all got jobs in the power plan and, you know... Um, they all they all meet different weird ends. I think Jose Canseco himself falls into the Twilight Zone uh, while he's out taking <laughs> yeah, pictures or some stupid shit like that. Um, and I was listening to the director's commentary, and on that episode, <clears throat> someone who I was actually talking to at the time, the co-creator of Future Armor and one of the previous um, writers on The Simpsons, David X. Cohen, was on the commentary track. And he was saying... All of these guys, they all came in over like a three-day period to record their lines. And while, you know, that he's like, they're not actors, they were all really lovely people. They posed for pictures with the staff who were fans. They signed autographs. They'd join us for meals and stuff on breaks. And they were all really good. They were all great, apart from one guy. <laughs> I won't tell you who they are, but their name rhymes with Mankeiko. So, um, <laughs> like, it wasn't subtle. <laughs> they were saying he was an asshole throughout the entire experience, did not want to be there, did not want to do more than one take, didn't give a shit about the process, didn't warm up, just a massive asshole to absolutely everybody in the building. So they threw him under the bus. And unfortunately, over the years, like all the stories I've heard about Jose Canseco being an idiot and being, you know, steroids and all these other scandals. Another thing that seemed to keep cropping up was that he is a massive prick. Yeah. So, <laughs> it seems on brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Jose Canseco, what is there left to say about this man? A really classic high profile idiot there. Thank you for choosing that because I, I think we would have eventually got round to him because he's almost more famous for his lunacy than he is for his glittering baseball career at this point. Right. And he had a huge career. Like you were saying, like he was, one of the greatest of his era in, oh, a, yeah. in a way to yep. be featured to be immortalized on the simpsons is is one thing but to then be remembered as this guy who was keeping up with barry bonds and all this stuff uh, with uh, mark mcguire even it, it's really really kind of amazing but as far as like i really do hope he's stopped now because that's like the guy's got to be in his what his 50s 60s something like that at this point yeah, he's sixty-four. He was. He got here in sixty-five. Graduated right. in eighty-nine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's. He's. Dude, could you imagine shooting steroids yeah. still into your fifties and sixties? That's fucking madness. That like the amount of people that have killed over from heart attacks in their forties who were big juices, and like these East German, uh, former USSR shot putters, these female shot putters who were on so many different steroids and. The, that when they retired, they would actually trans, uh, they would transition into the opposite sex because they were just all muscle 
and they they were they were on so much in the way of testosterone that they were transitioning to men because they've been on it for so long <clears throat> yeah so, that's a lot of hair uh hormones to be doing for yeah for like 20 years of your your athletic career that will change your body basically so jose canseco a re- i love i mean he did some terrible things let's not get this wrong but i love the stories that surround this guy like real stupidity who shoots themselves in the fucking hand um, running his BMW or his Porsche into his BMW. What an asshole. I want either asshole. one of those. Stop running into shit with it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> just just for the stories to learn. The fact that he's still who is, he's fighting in his 60s. Um, I, I've got to go with a 90 on Jose Ooh. Canseco. Yeah. Wow. Just he does not learn. And okay, he's never killed anyone that we know of. And allegedly. you know, he's been accused of some stuff allegedly, and it's never panned out. But like just the consistent level of moronness is yeah. just beautiful to witness. And it's like a lot of it's quite comical as well, because it's like he was an asshole and he's getting his come up and so it's okay to sort of laugh about it a little bit. It's dark <laughs> so yeah, Jose Canseco <laughs> Full on 90. I'm happy with that because Jesus Christ, what an arsehole. Now, <laughs> in a bit of a twist, now we, we have done something similar to this in the past. Um, when we covered um the former CEO of or yeah, chairman CEO of Shell, um okay. Tony, I can't remember his last name, and <clears throat> his response to the deep uh, the the oil disaster in uh, the Gulf, yeah. In the yeah. Gulf, yeah. And, you know, the complete PR disaster that he created and sent the stock prices plummeting. We kind of questioned whether he should be the idiot or whether Shell, uh, sorry, BP, I shouldn't say Shell, yeah. sorry, it was BP, um, whether they should be the real idiots. Now, at the time we questioned you, I think we went with Tony um, on that one. However, this time, I'm pretty certain that the idiot is the company involved. Okay. And let me tell you the story of the mall life project okay and the <laughs> the company behind the providence place mall in rhode island um you're gonna love this okay downtown... it's like a shopping mall yeah it's it's a, a giant shopping mall no i i should have i should have written down there's an article out there that i i cribbed a lot of this off i'm really sorry um i've forgotten to write it down i will probably put it in the notes of this uh when i do eventually find it uh, a lot of credit to that article as well as a few other sources um i've cribbed a lot of the story from this but a mall is about to go into our hall of fame <coughs> all right so let me tell you <laughs> in downtown providence rhode island there's a large and prominent plot of land that sits on the bank of the wunaska tucket river i got it right holy shit nice <laughs> yeah. In 1838, it was the home of the Rhode Island State Prison. Later, the land housed the continuing education campus for the University of Rhode Island. After that came the dirt parking lot of Ray's Park and Lock, which, oh, nice. yeah, um, <laughs> names like that make me want to go back to America because, like, whenever I think of like Americana, I think of like shops that are called like Ray's. Right. Pizza, you know, like that sort of name, that's like classic Americana to me. And that makes me want to go right the way back and just have holidays <laughs> in small small towns just to see stuff like that. Um, from 1975 to 1982, $606 million of local and national community development funds were invested throughout the city. <coughs> Sorry. In the 1990s, 
the city push for revitalization, realigning the north-south railroad, uh, railroad tracks, removing the huge rail viaduct that separated downtown from the Capitol building, uncovering and moving the rivers, which had been covered by paved bridges, to create water place park and river walks along the river's banks, and constructing the Fleet Skating Rink, now the Alex and Annie City Centre. So, yeah, bunch of new projects cropping up in the mid-70s to the 90s. The, they've spent billions, and it's about to get even more intense. Okay. In an even more grand effort to revitalize the city, the Providence Place Mall was opened in 1999 at a cost of $500 million to build. Holy crap. That is a, a bad timing on that, too. 1999. 1999, yeah. That's that's the uh, one of the first major recessions around that so, time. So shit. close to like the end of malls being a thing here, too. I know. That's like, Almost this is, got this it. might be the last great <laughs> mall ever built at this point. Yeah, <laughs> holy shit. Um, and it was uh, considered a super regional, meaning a one-stop shopping destination that housed everything consumers could possibly want or need in one location. And it's interesting. Now, obviously, malls are in rapid decline across America. Mm -hmm. It's very famous, as you just pointed out. Um, in this country, when we think of, I mean, we have malls. We have, you know, every town has a little mall, usually in the city center. It might be inside somewhere traditional mall basically so it's right. internal you've got a few shops off it nothing major in terms of major super regional malls i can probably think there's maybe 15 to 20 in the entire uk stuff that you would consider wow okay you can go there for the day and you do okay. not have to leave you can do everything you want you can get your film you can eat you can rest you can buy all your food and then when the sun goes down you can go home and call your <laughs> bank manager and ask for a loan or something um in america as i understand it like you guys have like 20 or 30 of these things like per state sometimes oh yeah where you go. like they were everywhere oh. so that's my first jobs were like in the mall running like a shoe store, you know, Amazing. hanging out at the food court that like the movie mall rats too. Like that was yeah. the culture in the nineties. Love that film. I fucking yeah. love Kevin Smith's early work, but yeah. I caught mall rats at like two o'clock in the morning over in the UK. And I was like, well, this is brilliant. This is exactly what I imagine it's like actually. So it was a lot yeah. like that. <laughs> so the, the, the culture of malls are kind of, they're interwoven with the 80s and 90s, I think. And um, obviously then in the 2000s, as you say, they start to go into a decline. And now they are in rapid decline, as far as I can tell. And they're just going to be sprawling empty carcasses of, of what used to be capitalism. But at the time, I guess 500 million for something that was looking to revitalize Providence, Rhode Island. I think it's probably a good investment. But you are a few years away from that not being the case. Right. So, yeah. But um, Amazon. <clears throat> yeah. Screw you, Amazon. Uh, as, as one of their things sits over my shoulder behind me. Um, <laughs> the design of the mall was partly done by the architect uh, Friedrich S. Florian. Friedrich St. Florian, sorry. He also built the sky bridge that connected the mall with the Omni Providence Hotel, formerly the Western Hotel. In total, Providence Place consists of. 15 levels across a 13-acre plot. Wow. I know. The fifth through the ninth levels, which features uh, the indoors Galleria, there is a Dave and Busters, an IMAX theater, and a 16-screen cinema on the seventh level. Yeah. Wow. The more, See, that's, 
big. <laughs> yeah, that's like one. That's like the Mall of America big. There's yeah. not that many of those. That's that's almost as big as that one in Canada where they get apartments underneath and stuff, right? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? You got you living underneath a mall. Holy shit! Can't <laughs> <laughs> think of anything worse. Uh, the mall also hosts two large parking garages, one city side and one other state side, anchored to its back end. Bridges connect the two sides over the Wanaskatucket River. I'm getting worse at that. Um, the mall's winter garden is a noticeable architectural feat. The four-level structure in the center of the mall spans the Wanaskatucket River. I'm getting better now. Um, and Amtrak's Northeast Corridor Line. The area features large expanses of uh, glass uh, providing views of the city. The mall is so fucking big, a river and a train line run underneath this thing. That is nuts. That is crazy. <laughs> that is a, a big-ass mall, man. That is a big mall. Um, the third level of the Winter Garden contains the food court and, uh, and uh, access to its uh, fourth level, serving as the entrance to Dave and Buster's, the IMAX theater, and the cinema. Although not directly connected to the mall, Amtrak's Providence Station is located uh, approximately 200 yards east of the mall, providing Acela Express and Northeast Regional Services to Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. Really smart move, building oh, yeah. it where they did, because... You know, you've got people coming into Providence and you're like, oh, what is there to do? Holy shit, what is that fucking enormous monolith <laughs> over there? Um, but unfortunately, not as much thought went into the actual design of the place, as you might think, despite its sprawling level. We'll get into that in a second. Um, okay. In early 2017, this is long after what the events we're talking about, <clears throat> the garages were renovated, including converting the first two floors of the former J.C. Penney into more parking and the addition of a system indicating where spaces are available. So that's the information about the mall. It sounds like your typical giant uh, white whale of an investment, really. Uh, sounds impressive, right? It sounds Oh, normal. yeah. It, yeah. yeah, it seems like a really good idea, a good solid use of money. I mean, hmm. I it, it's a draw. It's bringing people yeah. in, and it's got its own transportation system bringing people in Absolutely. too. <laughs> it sounds like you see the thing is I don't like spending a huge amount of time in malls in general, but I kind of like there's a, a word in French called to flaner or flaner, which is to walk without purpose. You're just walking to take stuff in. Right, and um, I kind of like doing that in malls. I don't know why I feel like like the atmosphere and the stuff. It's kind of a bit different. Like you don't really get that anywhere else. And you know, I don't mind doing that and hanging out there. And, like it's a good place to catch a film, maybe have something to eat, stuff like that. I don't mind spending a couple of hours in a mall. That's fine. I wouldn't do it all day because my fucking legs would be exhausted. But, and I'd rather <laughs> do that in a mountain. You know, I'd rather do that somewhere pretty. Yeah. Um, however. This is where the design twist comes in, and um, despite it being a gigantic 13-acre mall, they fucked up big time, and you're about to hear how that comes into play to the actual story. Artist Michael Townsend lived nearby when the mall was going up. At first, Townsend had uh, an open mind about the project. He was cautiously optimistic that it could bring more people and business to the neighborhood, which is obviously a good thing. If you're a local artist, there's more opportunities for you there, right? Mm -hmm. um, Townsend used to go on daily runs very early in the morning and one of his running routes <clears throat> took him past the construction site and he watched as the building slowly took shape there was one particular part of the building that kept catching his eye amidst all the bustle of construction there seemed to be a spot where nothing was going on there were two giant walls 
something like that. Like that. Two giant <laughs> walls, which almost touched, but not quite. Townsend remembered thinking to himself, why isn't that just one wall? Why would you build two walls with enough space to squeeze through them? The narrow <laughs> canyon between the walls led to a seemingly unused space that was a couple of stories high, but didn't quite seem to be storage or parking space. So it's just a giant void in just this empty building. space. Just a huge empty space that, granted, there's like, I think it was a two foot gap. I've seen pictures of this, and I, I highly recommend you go and have a look at this afterwards because there's videos and pictures of this whole thing. There's like a two foot gap, which if you're looking at it from the right angle, you can kind of see all the way in. But if you're just passing it, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. You don't really notice it because it's kind of dark at the other end. Anyway, um, Townsend wasn't sure what the space was doing there. All he knew was that the result was kind of an accidental room in the guts of the building that only existed by virtue of the uh, intentionally designed rooms around it. There we go. Four years later, a second group of developers, encouraged by the success of Providence Place, set their sights on Townsend's neighborhood. He lived in a historic mill district with several other artists in a building called Fort Thunder. Fort Thunder was a warehouse on the second floor of a pre-Civil War former textile factory in Olneyville, district of Providence, Rhode Island. From 1995 through 2001, the space was used as a venue for underground music and events, as well as being a living and working space for the artists. Fort Thunder was started by Matt Brinkman and Brian Chippendale, who were the space's original residents, along with Rob Coggeshall, and Freddie Jones. I just I, the thing that strikes me about this: why would you demolish a pre-Civil War building? I don't know. know. I don't kind of crazy. Like, it's, wouldn't you? They do. <laughs> it's really sad. Like in this country, we have this thing called listed status. So a lot of buildings are either uh, grade two listed or historic listed, and you can't. Like, if you're grade two listed, you can't change the exterior of the thing, but you can do what you want to the interior. If it's listed as a historic building you basically can't do shit to it other than put central heating and water into it. So that building ain't going nowhere and you have to preserve it. Like if you live there, your house is historic and you have to look after it. It is part of history and it is to be revered. The fact that this building, why wouldn't you keep the facade and repurpose the inside? If people are living and working there, surely that means that people can live there. Just, just turn them into, interesting apartments with the old facade on there loads of people would love to live in a building like that right right yeah no makes sense you want to make it look architecturally interesting don't demolish a pre-civil war building that's terrible that's what we do here we tear stuff down and build new that's really sad um fort thunder was known for its colorful posters promoting shows posted on walls around providence at various times they hosted costumed wrestling and halloween mazes the group awesome. of artists that's I'd love to go to a wrestling show in a place like that. Holy, oh, that would be amazing. Uh, the group of artists who lived there and worked there also sometimes referred to it as thought Fort, uh, Fort Thunder. There we go. Bit of a mess, doesn't it? Since the closure of Fort Thunder in 2001, former residents and friends of Fort Thunder have received acclaim in many areas, particularly in the genres of noise rock. Never heard of that. Mm-hmm. Um, alternative <laughs> comics and contemporary art. Members of Force Field, a collaborative project started at Fort Thunder, had their uh, their artwork included in the 2002 Whitney Bilennial, Bilennial whatever that is. I don't know. That's a hey, word I don't know. That's a word I don't know either. <laughs> but it bred 
amazing artists. So this is clearly a place that is useful to the surrounding area. It's part of the local culture, and you should be encouraging and protecting that instead of knocking it down. You know what you should do? You should tear it down and start over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what would work in its place? A staples. (laughs) And I am not joking about yeah, start no, no, just the staples. Don't push okay. your luck here. <laughs> <All right. laughs> in 2006, the Museum of Art at Rhode Island School of Design exhibited Wonderground Providence 1995 to present, an exhibition focusing on the underground art and music scene of Providence with major reference to an inclusion of artists connected to Fort Thunder. In 2001, the building was demolished by Feldco developers to make way for the parking lot of a Shaw's grocery store and the staples just a fucking parking lot you bastards wow. um, both of which closed soon after they opened capitalism embracing karma right yeah. there fuck Ouch. you staples uh. so they knocked it down and within a year staples was out of business so well, it's yeah it was the energy of the land saying hey dicks yeah <laughs> you built on an ancient artistic burial ground how dare you and just yeah. went all kind of poltergeist on their ass um, <clears throat> the new development project used a specific computer algorithm to determine where the best place to construct was and unfortunately for townsend it was right on fort thunder like where the two lines crossed each other was a predator drone strike on my bedroom he said damn that's got to hurt <laughs> That's got to hurt. The developers wanted to tear down nearly all of the old mill, uh, old mill buildings and replace them with more retail. Townsend would end up spending the next two years fighting alongside other residents to save the mill district, but unfortunately the building was replaced by a parking lot for a supermarket. Fucking gross. Man, they like building parking lots, don't they? they Let's really tear do. down some cool stuff and build some parking yeah. lots. Let's <laughs> let people drive to this empty lot where there was history once. Townsend and other artists saw it as another sign of excessive new developments in Providence, but they weren't done with the developers or with the mall. They decided the best way to understand what they were up against was to live in the mall for one week after leaving, uh, without leaving, sorry. Okay. <clears throat> in part, That's an Townsend, artist thing to do. <laughs> exactly yeah it's just there are ways about doing it especially in a place like that I, there's a a, a uh, an airport in singapore i think it's one of the it might be the best airport in singapore there, there was a guy who was just and i know we've had this with terminal and other films like that there was a guy who spent like weeks just walking around the place and sleeping in various spots and nobody saw him nobody kicked him out because the building was so big they couldn't keep right. track of him so he just lived there rent free for a week um in part Townsend and his uh, displaced friends wanted to do something to reclaim their sense of agency, to assert that spaces like the mall could belong just as much to them as to the developers. In order to do this, they would need to find a space in the mall where they could hide themselves away, an area that was not a store, nor a parking lot, nor a storage area. Hmm. What they needed (laughs) was that accidental room that Townsend had spotted years ago. Brilliant. Amazing. (laughs) When he got there and took his friends with him, Townsend discovered that the long, dark canyon formed by the two walls was still accessible from the ground. The entrance was uh, hard to see at a glance, but it had never been sealed off. What the fuck? This place is barely finished. Good job. That's amazing. (laughs) You found a hidden room. It only gets better. This is the most amazing part. The room was tall and narrow, filled with the byproducts of the mall's construction six years earlier, 
things like uh, disused or uh, discarded two by fours, screws, and plastic zip ties that hadn't been worth removing. The room had basically been forgotten. It was big, Townsend remembers. It was a big space that served no other purpose. It wasn't a storefront and it wasn't a stairwell. It was just big. As far as luck goes, finding a large, hidden, watertight space with building materials already scattered around, that's kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. It? You would, wouldn't you? You like you, you find this place, you find all the stuff, you're like, I kind of have to do this. I think. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Uh, when Townsend showed the rest of the group what he'd found, their ideas about the scheme started changing. I bet they fucking did. Uh, the initial <laughs> plan had been to spend only a week in the mall, but now they were sitting on a 700 square foot of underutilized space. Uh, and actually, given that it's two stories, you, you know, 1,500, well, sorry, terrible maths, 1,500, yeah, you can double that 1,500 square foot because you can build a mezzanine level or, or another floor. Yeah. Um, 700 feet underutilized wow. space. Given the opportunity, they asked themselves, what would a developer do? Demolish the whole fucking thing and cattle <laughs> while doing it is probably the answer. Parking lot. Parking lot, yes. <laughs> we can fit three or four cars here. Um, Townsend and his friends decided to turn this unused space into their own personal condo. The new plan wasn't just to live in the mall for just a week. It was now simply to live in the mall, days at a time, using the room as an apartment. Seems legit. It now I'm excited to see how this works. This is absolutely <laughs> amazing. Townsend and his friends got to clearing the debris from the space. They filled their backpacks with dirt and grime and carried it out of the mall. And for every backpack full of debris they took out, they'd bring in a backpack full of something useful in. So like, you know, building materials and tools and stuff like that. They hauled in gallons, uh, gallon jugs of water for drinking and cleaning. Uh, clamp lights and extension cords for illumination, which they plugged into the mall's internal power source. Um, they even built cinder block wall to hide the space from anyone who might venture into the cavernous little complex for various other potential entrances. So it's like there's this one main entrance that very few people can see, but there are other ones that are more open. And if you kind of wander down corridor after corridor, you eventually end up there. So they built walls. So everyone's like, oh, this is where I stop, right? Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> anything that they could buy from the mall to decorate, they would, with a few exceptions. They brought in their own couch, God bless you, and it's fuck, it, it's an awesome little couch, and get this, a china hutch in broad yeah. daylight. <laughs> they just moved in a couch they and a china hut to the mall. A giant ch <laughs> couch and a china hut. So, okay. Uh, the way you get in, so the walls that, that kind of have the gap in them like that, they are right next to the river and they're kind of outdoors, essentially. Okay. So the, the, the entrance is outdoors. Um, but there are hundreds of people walking past there at any time, right? So you are still within the boundaries of the mall, but the actual entrance to the thing is outside. It just happens that once you get into that space, you've basically got free access to the mall. So that's that's, that's crazy part. I know. So they are there are hundreds of people walking along this riverside, and they are walking past with a china cabinet and the couch. I have to say it's brilliant because if you you know the ebb and flow of people worked in their favor because the mall becomes a living organism with mm -hmm. like daily activities of people getting to work, whatever. You know, you see stuff at night when there's no one around, and you see five people walking around with a china cabinet. You're like. 
There's something <laughs> fucking funny going on here. Yeah. You know? But <laughs> if someone's doing that in broad daylight or a couch or like a china couch, you're like, oh, they've just parked a long way from the shop or like they've gone to pick it up and they're having a range. You like you, right. you come up with excuses in your mind. You're like, oh, that's unusual, but it's daylight. They're probably not doing anything shifty. You know, because yeah. like who does shit like that in the day? You know, and that's exactly what <laughs> they're counting on. <laughs> Amazing. The friends would sometimes live in their secret room for several weeks in a row. At the emotional rubble of Fort Thunder, they'd found a new refuge refuge, sort of a magical hideout. It was both thrilling and strangely exciting. Uh, strangely relaxing, even sorry. Um, the mall's developers had inadvertently provided a refuge for the world that they would uh, busy developing over the top of inside there were no plans for supermarkets or parking lots or retail space it was a perch from which inside uh, townsend and his friends could observe the world without being in it or being threatened by new developments they were completely safe in the bowels of this capitalist juggernaut basically That's so neat that they just randomly found Amazing. like a space that didn't exist yeah. Yeah, I, I can't express it fully in pictures, but you have to see the pictures of this place because to get into it, so you go in and they kind of, they were very clever about it. They kept it very subtle. It still looked like a disused garbage thing. But then there's like this ladder that goes up to like a little door, one story up, and then you go in there and it is a full apartment with sofas and couches and beds and uh, a hot plate, <laughs> kettles, water everywhere clothes everywhere there's beds there's like a, they've got a playstation and a tv that's in there. nuts that is <laughs> insane it's heated it's got electricity it's got running water and they're not paying a penny in rent brilliant so, amazing um when they were enjoying their secret apartment they enjoyed them all not as shoppers but as residents um <laughs> Thanks to its late-night movie theater, the mall almost never closed. Sometimes they would just roam the building with no goal in mind, observing its many moods. Apparently, what they do is they sneak into the movie theater's bathrooms because they were showing films like at midnight and stuff like that. So they'd sneak into the bathrooms when the films were on, so like like a big action blockbuster that's going on for several hours. They would go into the toilets when there was nobody there on like a, a level lower down or higher up or whatever it is. And they would basically like have a shave, they brush right. their teeth, and then they'd have like a complete wash in the sink. So they're having essentially a, a sponge shower uh, in right. the sink. And then people are coming afterwards going, oh, why is there shaving foam everywhere? What the fuck's been going on? <laughs> <laughs> the guy's all mad every time he's going to clean the bathroom. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, thinks ah, it's their house. Why has everybody been treating this like their home? Why is there beard <laughs> hair everywhere? Um, one day they came back to the apartment only to discover that someone had kicked open the door and stolen the PlayStation along with several other personal items. Uh -huh. The intruders had left behind silverware and the television, which seemed odd for a burglary. Uh, Townsend and his friends were spooked. They'd managed to hide the apartment for four years at this point. What? <laughs> They'd That's a there. lot longer than a week. <laughs> They'd been living there for four fucking years. Um... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But no, but um, uh, now they knew someone knew about the room and they could uh, come back at any time. So they had to change things up. They decided that they'd only stay there 
at night when the chances of being caught were quite low, never during the day. They would also double down on another rule they'd had almost since the beginning, which is don't share it with anyone. Townsend, meanwhile, was hosting a visit at, at the exact same time this happened and they set the new rules out. Townsend was hosting a visiting artist from Hong Kong named Jaffa and was driving her to the bus station on her way out of town. As they drove past them all, though, he figured she would appreciate seeing the secret apartment. He was trying to bang her. Let's, mm -hmm, let's not hide mm -hmm. this, you know. <laughs> um, what harm could it do to show her? So he took Jaffa into the apartment, the couch, the lights, the television, all of that stuff. At this point, the residents had made a new plan to live in the mall full-time for a year. So at that point, they were like, yeah. we're never leaving. We're just going to go get everything we need from the mall. We're not even going to leave. That way, if anyone comes in, we can just scare them off or something like that. That was their new plan. Okay. Um, they figured out uh, to bring in a water tank, and we're even working on a full kitchen and a flush toilet. So they weren't <laughs> going to use the mall's facilities. They were just going to take it all. Um, wow. After four years of work, the apartment was on the verge of feeling like a real home. As they were leaving, however, him and Jaffa, the woman he's desperately he, he's trying to seduce, uh, they heard a walkie-talkie on the other side of the door. They were busted. Turned out the early the earlier break-in had actually been two mall security guards. Um, so that stole their PlayStation. Yeah, Paul Blart, fucking thieving <laughs> bastard. Instead of removing everything, they'd taken the personal items in the hopes of identifying Townsend and his friends. Like, how would you identify someone mm. from a fucking PlayStation? They're not going to leave their name on it or anything. They Jesus. got his username. <laughs> they've got his ps entry code uh now that townsend had been foolish enough to come back during the day it was all over um after being handed over to the police and interrogated jaffa was eventually let go because like she was yeah nothing to do with it but townsend soon found himself standing in front of a judge in a criminal court the prosecution rattled through a laundry list of offenses some of which could have seen him go to jail for over a decade Holy crap. some of the offenses. But the judge didn't seem too impressed by the charges. If anything, he appeared more impressed by the audacity of the secret apartment dwellers. So he gave Townsend a misdemeanor for trespassing and sent him on his way. <laughs> it's, that seems fair, though. That I does. Mean, if you get away with it that long, yeah. you gotta just give it to them. They own it now. I know. I know. Come on. <laughs> like, we've in the country, we have squatters' rights. I don't know what it's like in the States where, like, if a, a building is empty for like, 10 years and someone lives in it and takes care of it and no one's tried to claim it in that time then it's theirs you right. know um but like I, how did they not find them for four fucking years yeah that's... this is the biggest mall in like what well, one of the biggest malls in the northeast of america and they couldn't find a bunch of artists living in a fucking room well because they didn't know the room existed apparently not which is the it crazy was just an part. accident they I accidentally know. built a room unbelievable so he got away with a slap on the wrist but uh that doesn't mean he got away scot-free unfortunately just before townsend left the mall the mall security team handed him a piece of paper it was the same piece of paper that they handed to brawlers and shoplifters and anyone else who overstayed their welcome a map of the mall with a red line drawn all the way around it, indicating that Townsend could not come within that distance of the Providence Place Mall. Now, over a decade later, Townsend still lives right near the mall, but his days of running anywhere near its 13 acres are over. He can never go back. Townsend is still making art in Providence and came around uh, and, and around the world is one of the members of Trummer Kind Art Collective. 
and whose website you can learn more about the secret apartment thing. Um, there, are, there are a couple of documentaries about this online that like people have made videos about it. It's I, I discovered it and I was fascinated by two things. First of all, the idea of people living in a mall. I think at a certain point in time, everyone sort of dreams of living somewhere like that for free. I think it's a certain age. You're like, Wouldn't it be cool if we could live here for free and it'd be ours? You know, that's why Dawn of the Dead is oh, yeah. such a cool kind of like, I, I like that idea to a certain extent without the zombies, sure. But um, I think everybody has that dream. But also, the I was impressed by, the again, the audacity of the artist to actually do it for four years. But also, what really impressed me is Providence spends half a billion dollars building a mall across 13 acres, and they decide to not join two walls up and not use... Like, uh, I so used to design weird. stuff for a living. You do not waste anything. Design is about making everything count and making it as efficient as possible. To have an empty two-story space with two walls doing nothing is unbelievable. How the Providence people got that wrong well, is beyond me. And then they didn't notice this for nearly five years is right. just fucking insane. So I, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> It's it's so crazy. So what do you make of Providence Place Mall and the artists who live there without paying any rent or any bills for four years? Well, friggin' bravo to them. I'm I know. amazed. I I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, it's kind of a difficult one to score because this isn't like an obvious case of an idiot, but it was such an amazing story. I felt we had to cover it. And I do feel that it's a case of a company being so complacent that they haven't actually done proper checks and they continue to not do those checks despite the fact there are people living in their mall. That's yeah. kind of mad. It's, I mean, it it feels, it really feels like nobody really knew it was there and they no. just kind of like, oh, that was just, it's a weird little space. Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to take a look at pictures and watch some of these documentaries and whatnot. But Please it's, do. I'm also going to go walk around the mall and see if I can find any walls that don't touch. Because, I mean, <laughs> why hey not? guys, we're moving. Well, uh, they're closing all the malls around here anyway and yeah. turning them into like healthcare schools. And I mean, that's great. Lots. I love that. I love that they're turning them into healthcare facilities and schools and shit. But, you know, maybe if you do have a housing crisis or if you do have a homelessness issue in a certain state, there's there's your solution right i mean it's i always thought hard. that too i yeah. i constantly wonder hey look at all these abandoned buildings that have been sitting here for like 10 years how hard would it be to set up like cot spaces and run i guess you'd have to have somebody to run it and pay it but what? i mean yeah, but like how hard would that be I, that's solved another issue uh unemployment but like I, I think that's that's a big debate going on in this country because obviously the uk is quite densely populated except for you know parts of scotland and wales and stuff like that so um there's a big debate going on the Tory government are very in favor of building on green belt land. So basically the countryside. They want to build um, across uh, England's rolling, beautiful countryside and farmland and all the other stuff we're supposed to be protecting. But at the same time, people are pointing out like there are hundreds of thousands of acres of disused um, like factories and just wasteland that have just not been developed. Like develop these sites that already have electricity supplies, that already have water supplies, just right. build on them. It's really not that hard. There are 
hundred you could build five thousand new houses near me in a bunch of factory places you would have no housing shortage whatsoever well and there's stuff like that here too they're selling off some of these uh missile silos that they yes come and they're building big complexes just in my my neighborhood not my neighborhood but in my state just a little bit south of here like a half hour drive maybe there was some missile silos that just sat abandoned and empty for like 20 years that's crazy and And now you turn them into apartments yeah so well a rich dude's turning it into his own personal private apartments but i would do that i would do that to be honest (laughs) i look at that and i'm like how did people not just wander across this and live here anyway like they had rooms and bathrooms like because people worked there and lived there yeah people would have to be on site for days at a time in case you know the russians fucking flip the switch or something but yeah it's it's kind of i do like this story because it is a big fuck you to the people who demolished their house right you know let's not hide the fact that this would not have happened had developers not got greedy and attacked essentially a very vital part of the city's cultural scene and turned it into a fucking parking lot for a building that shut within a year of its opening anyway. So they showed them. They really did and lived in the mall um, and, and just like fed off the kind of the profits and the, the mechanism of capitalism by living in this space that they didn't have to pay for. It is brilliant. Um, I wanted to know your thoughts on um, the score. I mean, I'm not expecting a high score for this one. But, I'm not sure um, how to score it. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so difficult. It's such an amazing story that it kind of goes outside the realms of our um, podcast. I think it's more of a case of like greedy developments that on multiple fronts, like you knock down their home. So you fuck them to start with. And mm-hmm. then you haven't finished your own fucking building because you're too busy trying to make money. That stuff like this happens. I mean, God knows. Thank God it was only artists that lived there. You know, imagine oh, right. if like some like, say someone who was angry, someone who'd already written their manifesto, lived in this fucking place. Imagine if it was a domestic terrorist or something else, an extremist organization or whatever it might be, or a really radical church or some really horrible people. Imagine Hell, if I they was... got in there, they would have caused havoc for years and no one would have found them. Well, I'm just so, thinking of the, the danger aspect on a smaller yeah. scale. Any women or other yes. targets that might have been walking by there easily dragged through the space Absolutely. into a, where nobody knows. Yes. Yeah, yeah mm. a, a huge <laughs> locked away space that nobody can really see or hear in and is completely at like that is that serial killer kind of yeah. scary right there. I, I so. give the artists a negative 90 because they're friggin' awesome. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Michael Townsend. I did actually try to reach out to him to see if we could get a statement, but um, he's he's very reclusive these days. So, uh, yeah, but <laughs> thank you for your amazing story. But sorry, carry on with your story. Um, as far as the, the developers building something that was such a danger and yeah. weird and a waste of space... It was. Um... Gosh, I don't know. I like a, I guess like a 75 probably. Sure. I'll, I mean, I'll absolutely take a 75. It's just like, think of what they could have done with that space because it's right by the river, right? So you've got this lovely spot. Instead of like building two walls, and like, turn it into like a, a little mini park or a seating area. Right, like that, yeah. You know? A little just, outdoor atrium type thing. Yeah. 
Just yeah. like a little place you could even, I mean, if they wanted to, they could turn it into a little coffee shop. You know, it's it's right there. It's it's really not. I mean, they proved that they get running water and electricity to it. So yeah, just close the wall and turn it into a shop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> crazy. Um, so yeah, that's the space. I highly, honestly, I would recommend to anyone going to find out about the uh, the. I can't remember what I called it at the start. It did actually have a name. It's got loads of different names. But if you type in Providence Mall. And it's called the Mall Life Project, I think. And Michael Townsend is the artist who lived there. There are a bunch of videos online. There's a bunch of pictures. There's a bunch of documents about it. Um, I'd highly recommend reading about it because it is a fascinating story. And the kind of it, he's a bit of a hero because I, I feel like a lot of us would like to have the bravery to do that to a certain extent. Yeah. But because we have other commitments and, you know, we're it's maybe afraid of breaking laws or whatever it might be or the consequences, we tend not to do that. But actually, I, I doth my hat to you, sir. That is oh, fucking yeah. amazing. So there Agreed. we go. That is the story of Jose Canseco, <laughs> um, possibly the, the biggest idiot in baseball history. I think that's fair to say. Can't yeah. Too many other examples. Really, uh, I mean, the people they're trying with you know cheating in baseball and banging uh, trash cans and whatnot, but yeah, he's 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 a long time rat and idiot in baseball. Yeah. No, not an idiot, that's a mean one. He's a yes, he's a clown, <laughs> yeah. baseball's clown. Um, yeah, Jose Canseco, who honestly, I actually do hope he kind of settles down into old age gracefully to a certain extent, like just enjoy your, your golden years, mate. Just, just, just mm -hmm. settle back into you know that part of your life and try and calm down and maybe take these as lessons that you can learn, like I hope uh, listeners do. But also, um, it, you know, the mall thing. I just fucking love that story. And <laughs> so did I. Yeah, that was good. Rampant, uh, uncontrolled speculative capitalism comes back to bite them in the arse, and it's just a really wonderful story. And I've really enjoyed researching this episode. I'm sure you probably did with Jose Canseco because your son's heavily yeah. involved in baseball and you probably got a big interest in it and stuff. So well, and super yeah. props to Joel for throwing that one out. There was a good idea. And yeah. tell your friends about it. Us people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Be like Joel, give us suggestions and tell your friends, please tell your friends. And if you'd, uh, like to reach out to us on social media we have um at history's greatest idiots on instagram and at greatest idiots on um twitter also if you go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots you can sign up and become our first ever patron and you can pay us money and we will send you free stuff and we'll also be really nice to you because we like our patrons please support us um but yeah that's that's been the show <laughs> so um <clears throat> if you find yourself feeling like you want to maybe do steroids and ruin your life, just just don't do it. The steroids are fucking terrible. Mm -hmm. And if you are thinking that you're going to use your power and influence to destroy the lives of some incredibly creative artists, probably don't do it because these fuckers will come for your shit, apparently. <laughs> so, that's, that's our show for this week. I've had a lot of fun doing this. Derek, it's been amazing as ever. Would you like to say goodbye, please? Goodbye. Everybody. And we will see you uh, in a couple of weeks. Take care now. Bye.